Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Online. If you're new, welcome. If not, welcome back. Well, I'm excited to start this series today for several reasons, but one of the main ones is this. Uh, people who've been coming to church for years, maybe even their whole life, they've heard these Bible stories, like Bible story, Bible story, Bible story, over and over again, that they, they kind of all just hang out in your mind. All these stories are kind of disconnected in space and time. And what I've found is that most Christians really don't know where to place these stories. They don't know how they fit together uh, chronologically and uh, why this story is placed here in this particular place in history and why this one is placed here. And when we start the, the story in the beginning and let it unfold the way God intended for it to be told, where when you get that, you're like, oh, there's, there's all kinds of lessons and implications we can find from from just doing that, starting in the beginning and working through it chronologically. And so I'm really excited about doing this. It's going to be about 31 weeks, finishing up just after Easter in 2023, and we're going to move chronologically through uh, the whole Bible. And we're also going to be uh, doing something a little bit different on, on Sundays, if you're here with us in person each week. We'll be breaking up into table groups at the end of each teaching and doing a kind of a little get-to-know-each-other uh, time and a little bit of discussion as well together. And it's going to be really great. So our kinfolk groups and our student ministries, they're going to be diving into this as well. So what we hope for you to do is to take your storybook and have uh, the chapter for that week already read when you come to service each Sunday. So we want you to do that before you get here uh, on Sunday morning so that you'll be full of questions and be ready to go. Or if you're watching online, you will have already read it as well. And we'll go from there. And then later that week or the next week, because our kinfolk groups meet every other week and our student ministries meet every other week, You'll talk about that in those groups. So if you're not in a Kimfold group, now is the time to jump in. Please use our website or our app to sign up or, you know, drop me an email at hello at westseattlechristian.church uh, or come find me on Sunday morning. So today we're going to begin at the beginning and it's critical to understand how the story begins, how it really begins, because it's God's story and it's for all of us. It's for everyone on the planet. Uh, and I just want to give you like a broad overview of what we're going to be doing in this series uh, before we start. So there's these five uh, broad movements uh, in the grand narrative that we're going to be jumping into. And because this journey is going to take us from the beginning of God's story to the end of it, it's, it's helpful to understand those. And a key concept we'll talk about will be uh, the upper story and the lower story. And when you hear that phrase, I want you to think of kind of a dual lens, kind of think of it as bifocals. The upper story is how God sees things, how he sees things. It's his grand vision. It's his big idea that permeates every part of the narrative contained in the entire Bible. That's the upper story. And the lower story is like we're looking in to the lower half of your bifocals so you can see clearly what's up close and personal. It's like daily life. It's the daily grind. And both, both of them are our story. And we meet people in these individual stories in the Bible that are part of the grand narrative. So, so when we examine uh, all the lower story situations and people in the scriptures, we can kind of kind of start to get a glimpse of the grand vision of God's upper story, which is sometimes hard to see or fathom or even to get a glimpse of. And the point is that we are all going to be able to do that better as we go along. So, Another key concept is how the story, uh, like I told you before, is broken into five smaller movements, um, uh, elements, basically. Uh, the first is the story of the garden, the story of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And then the story of Jesus, who comes out 
of the nation of Israel to be their savior, and in fact, the savior of everyone in the world. The story of the church is the next part. This is you and me and, and every other follower of the way of Jesus who has lived since the time of his death, burial, and resurrection. And last but not least, the story of the new garden when Jesus returns and makes all things new, where a new earth is joined with heaven. So uh, there's that. Uh, in timeline fashion, it looks like that. So that's the kind of broad overview uh, of the five movements we'll be working through each week together. Today, we're going to be talking about a small portion of that story, uh, and it looks like this. All right, at the beginning of our journey through the story of the Bible, it's like it's like the beginning of an action-packed movie. If you miss the opening minutes of a movie, you know, have you ever missed the opening minutes? Uh, there's maybe some fast-paced scenes, and if you miss those, you're not going to understand uh, the rest of the story. And it's kind of the same with the Bible's grand story. Now, if we look at every other story that's out there on Earth about how the beginning of human history started, whether it's Celtic or Nordic or Hindu or Greek or Roman, Zoroastrian or the Enuma Elish or the Epic of Gilgamesh, you name it, uh, the beginning of creation, according to most, if not all, of those accounts is because the gods were angry and the earth and people were birthed out of situations involving anger and revenge. Uh, but what Moses says in the first sentence in the Bible is absolutely revolutionary. The one true story of creation opens like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so there wasn't any conflict or anger or chaos involved in that. God just created. He speaks and it starts peacefully. And we're also introduced to this grand story's main character, God. Uh, and there are going to be a lot of other characters in this story. Uh, and maybe you have your favorite Bible character or your favorite Bible story. Um, but they, uh, they're all going to be, truth be told, they're all gone, all the people in those stories. And we're part of this story too. It's a story of faith. But one day we're going to be gone as well. And I want you to make no mistake. God is at the beginning of the story and he's at the end. He's the alpha He's the Omega. He's the main character uh, of the grand narrative that we call the Bible. So if you brought your copy of the story with you to church or, or if you have it at home and you're watching this online, I want you to turn to page one, Genesis chapter one in your Bible uh, as we uncover the first activity in the story of the garden called creation. And if you don't have a book uh, with you, uh, come on Sunday because we have a copy for you that you can get. That's our gift to you. It's yours to keep especially if you intend to commit to traveling with us on this journey for the next 31 weeks. But when we read uh, this opening line that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it reminds us that the beginning of the universe of existence as we know it is not some kind of cosmic impersonal accident. It's actually the creative and life-giving purpose of a very personal God. And what's really going on here is in the upper story, God has created the lower story. That's what happens in creation. The very first sentence of the Bible is powerful, and we are shown that everyone and everything finds their life and their breath and their being from God. Now, I want to pause here to remind you that Genesis 1 and 2 is not intended to be a science book uh, that uncovers the age of the earth or the exact biochemical and evolutionary processes that God used to pull it off. That stuff is absolutely amazing and fascinating, but it's not the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, we've talked about this in past series here at West Seattle Christian. This whole creation account is an ancient Hebrew poem. It's not 
a math or science or astronomy text. It's not what we would label biography or even the way we would write or study history year by year, date by date, figure by figure, event by event. God could have written uh, it down that way if he wanted to, describing maybe how he come up, how he came up with like the periodic table first, and then how he created matter out of nothing. But uh, he didn't do that for us. And I think perhaps it's because it's beyond the scope of even our best minds and understanding. So what did he do? He used a poem written in the language of a little-known ancient Middle Eastern people to tell us how it all began. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. And the Hebrew words there for earth was formless and empty are tohu vavohu. It literally means the earth was wild and waste. And God takes this wild and waste-ness and he begins to speak to it. And the more that God speaks, the more order comes from nothing. I would suggest that perhaps this can be true in our lives as well, that the more we let God speak into our lives, the more order can be created out of the chaos in our lives. And maybe at one level, this creation story isn't really about creation. Maybe it's just about us. Maybe it's about you and me. I think the intent of this creation poem is not to tell us about exact scientific processes and exact dates in history of precisely how long it took to create the universe and everything in it. The intent here, poetically, is to tell us who is behind creation and why it was all created. And the main point you need to embrace is that God is behind creation. God started with nothing, ex novo. He spoke tohu vavohu, and he created everything we can see and everything we can't see. Genesis 1 and 2 has less to do with our view of creation and science and more to do with embracing a proper view of God himself. And that's significant. I want you to sit with that for a little while. Well, the story carries on and says, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Verse 5 says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. I want you to see that it's a poem with a rhythm and a cadence to it. And we'll see that days one, two, and three are places that uh, created that were created by God. Day one, it's light and dark. Day two, it's sky and water. Day three is land and vegetation. God says, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Well, if you're like me, you're starting to notice two refrains that keep getting repeated. Uh, God saw that it was good and it was evening and morning. Well, the question is, why does it start with evening and morning in that order? Well, it's because in the Hebrew mindset, the day starts with rest. It goes from sundown to sundown, not sunup to sunup. And we start our day with work, and we're constantly trying to rest from our work today. 
the Hebrew day starts with rest and we work from a place of rest. Why does it keep repeating that God saw that it was good? I think the answer is simple because when God repeats something in the Bible over and over again, it's because he wants you to see it. That's why he keeps repeating. It was good. It was good. And so in days four, five, and six, we see that the places he created in the first three days are then filled with things and they're filled with creatures. So first the sun and the moon and the stars on day four, and then the birds and the sea creatures on day five. And then on day six, we see God create animals and human beings to fill all those places. And what we see is that all of the creative work concludes with God's primary passion, creating human beings made in his likeness, in his image to represent him and to take care of the universe and the world on his behalf. So God's core desire, his primary passion is people made in his image. And we see that story in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 with Adam and Eve, which we're going to get to in a second. But I want you to think about why did God create all this? And it comes down to the fact that he wanted to have a relationship with the crown of his creation, people, you and me. And so this place that we call the Garden of Eden, it says in the Bible, it tells us that it's located where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers intersect. Today, uh, that's down uh, by the Persian Gulf in modern-day Iraq, which is super ironic because that's not how we think of Iraq today, is it? We think of war and death. We don't think of peace and tranquility in a beautiful, magnificent garden. Well, I want to take a look at that on, on the map. So open, if you have your book, you want to open it to the beginning in the front binding. Uh, for the story. And you can find the next, the place next to the Persian Gulf in that map where you find the Tigris and Euphrates rivers meet. And I want you to draw a tiny tree where those two rivers meet. Write it right there in the book. In this garden, God places his crowning achievement, the apple of his eye, and he creates us. He created all the universe, 100 billion galaxies that we have found so far. are It's just an absolutely incredible display of his glory. But he does his best work, the work he's most proud of, right here in Seattle, in my opinion. He does his best work with people. He places people in Eden, creation of man and woman, Adam and Eve. And his vision is, is simple and grand at the same time. He wanted to be with us. His vision is to come down and be with us in a beautiful garden. In verse 26, the text says, and then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Well, you might be wondering right here in that text, who's the us? What's the our about? Well, most theologians consider these phrases to mean that the Trinity is present here at the beginning of creation. The Father is speaking to the Son and the Spirit, and together they're doing this creative work. And we call this the Godhead, the three in one, the one in three. And it's really important to state here that God creates not just man and not man over woman. He creates man and woman together to fully and adequately and accurately reflect the image of God. And this is how God intended uh, humanity to be, balanced and equal, in order to represent him fully and accurately. I mean, we could say it another way. The image of God is not complete without male and female together. 
both male and female were created to represent and mirror certain aspects of the likeness of who God is. And that's an important part of the story that goes right back to the very, very beginning. Another really important part of that section of the story is in verse 27, where it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And it's like, why is that repeated there? Three times right there, it's repeated. I think it's, again, because God wants you to remember it, that God made you for something, and he made you in his image for something special. The story goes on and describes what God wants humans to do with all this created goodness. It says in 28, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31 continues and says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And I want you to catch that uh, if you haven't caught it before. Right before the end of the sixth day, God looks around and he sees that he made man that day, humanity. That's the one day that it's not just good. On the day God created humans, he says, it's very good. And just think about that for a moment. All the beautiful things in creation are second to you. Mount Rainier, the Olympic Mountains, Sunset on the Beach, the Grand Canyon, Hawaii, whatever. You, they're all secondary to you because you are the crown of God's creation. And it's astounding to realize there that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune community of God, simply desires to come down and do life with the community of humanity, with us. In the first pages of the Bible, we see here, what we see here is that what matters most to God is relationships. Now let's stop for just a second because on the seventh day, God does what? It says he rests because there's another name used for God, El Shaddai, uh, by the Hebrews later, which means he's the God who knows when to say enough. So for all your perfectionists out there like me, that's for you to meditate upon just for a second. He's the God who says, who knows when to say it's good enough because what I made is exactly what I wanted to make. It's what I wanted it to be. It doesn't have to be any better. And there's, there's things that happen in chapter one that when you read the storybook, you'll see how they play out. First of all, it's good. Creation is good. God's world is good. And we have to remember that that is where the story begins. It's where our story begins. That's really important because one of the fundamental flaws of American Christianity is that we begin our story with a doctrine that evolved way back in the Middle Ages called the doctrine of original sin. It's why many Bibles still label this section in the scriptures, the fall. And yeah, it's a part, that's a part of the beginning of our story. But what I would suggest to you is that when God made Adam and Eve, he blessed them and he said, this is very good. That's what it says. God made them and he blessed them. And then he said, be fruitful and multiply and all the other stuff. What I want you to think about is this. God starts our story with blessing, not with sin, not with the fall. Your story doesn't begin with how bad you are. It begins with how good God is. And that's where our story begins. And he created a world that is good. And he gives us an agenda by which we're supposed to live in this good world. 
And when we do that, we have peace. And the more that we let God's agenda speak into our life, the more order and peace comes into our life because God's story is good. And that's the question, ultimately, that I want to put to you today. Do I live my life like I believe that God's story is good? Or do I live my life like I'm always waiting for something bad to happen? I mean, this matters. How we actually make decisions is heavily influenced by where we start our story. In the beginning, God created a good world and he spoke into it and order came out of the chaos. And when God speaks into your life, he brings order to your chaos as well. well. The next part of the story is in Genesis 3, where Eve has a conversation with a snake, which is apparently no big deal to her because she starts talking back to it. And then she eats the fruit of a tree that possesses the knowledge of good and evil. A tree does. It possesses this knowledge. And when people draw pictures of this or paint this scene, the fruit is always what? It's an apple. But we don't really know what it was. Uh, But when she eats it, she becomes aware of good and evil. But that's actually not accurate, is it? Because if you read the story, she already knew that it was wrong to eat the fruit. So she had some awareness of good and evil before she ate the fruit. And what does that mean? So there's this tension to deal with, which is kind of awesome and kind of frustrating. But what we really see happening in Genesis 3 is that there's another, another voice that's added to the equation that wasn't there before. Before this moment, it's only God's agenda and everything is good. And we're living, humanity is living out God's agenda fully. It's unhindered. It's uninterrupted. There's no shame. God has given humanity the freedom to choose. And even though God said, this is very good, and he blessed them, they're given the freedom to choose. And they choose poorly because another voice gets introduced that offers another way of seeing things that isn't God's way. And it costs them. It costs them dearly which is a whole lot about who we let influence us and why, like who we, which voices do we let influence us and why? Well, if you aren't familiar with what happens next, it's this, the first two people, they reject God's vision and they are escorted out from the garden. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which leads us to the fourth fourth thing. Uh, their decision introduces sin into the human race, and it keeps us from community with God. And if you remember, community with God, that's what God wanted most, a relationship with us. But relationships go two, two ways, and relationships involve trust to work properly. And so now they have to leave the garden. But before we get to Cain and Abel, there's something really uh, important that I want you to hear. There's all kinds of uh, strange things happening in Genesis 3. God comes. He has a conversation with Adam and Eve about their choices, about their actions. Um, But what I want you to hear is this. Adam and Eve, they never get cursed, actually. Genesis 3 is called the fall, typically, or in some versions, it's even called the curse of man. But it's not Adam and Eve that, that get cursed. They never get cursed. You have to read the Bible for what it really says, is what I always say, instead of what you may have heard. What really happens is the snake gets cursed and the ground gets cursed, but Adam and Eve never get cursed. They never do. And that's important for us because God doesn't see you as cursed. He actually sees you as full of potential. He still thought Adam and Eve were full of potential. He wanted that relationship back. Uh, But we still have to wrestle with this tension that is upon us because of the consequences of their choices 
And we're going to have to fight with it for the rest of our lives. And the tension is this. God sets his story in motion and he says, I want you to trust my story. He wants us to. But Eve doesn't and Adam doesn't. And that's the question that's at the heart of nearly every figure, every person that God wants to partner with in the Bible. And it's the question for us as well. Will we trust God's story? Will we trust him? I said before that the more we let God's agenda speak into our life, the more order and peace comes into our life because God's story is good. Will we live our lives like we believe that God's story is good? Or will we take matters into our own hands or our own scheming or our own devising because we think we can do a better job than God can do? Can we do a better job than him? Uh, this is sin entering the story, or if you prefer sin, this is the definition that we bring up uh, quite often here at church because it feels like people don't like to say that word sin anymore. They don't want to acknowledge it. This is how we define it. Sin is any thought or destructive action that harms yourself or others, whether it's emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically. There's this sin nature that's been with us from the beginning. Uh, where we're basically warring with ourselves over the question to trust God's story or not, whether or not we're going to trust him. In Romans 7, Paul says it like this, what I want to do, I don't do, but what I hate, I do. So the question is this, do you live your life oriented toward a good God who tells a good story and wants good things for your life? That's the question. And the choice remains uh, to this day. God says he wants us to trust his story. So we said, does, does Eve trust it? No. Does Adam trust it? No. And then we get to Genesis chapter 4, which is Cain and Abel, which um, you can read about in your storybook. You can read about it in your Bible. But what you're going to find is, you know, do Cain and Abel trust God and his story? And it appears that Abel does, but Cain definitely does not. And then Genesis chapter 5 is this long lineage, list of names. And then Genesis chapter 6 is the story of Noah and all the people around him on earth. And all these people didn't trust the story either. And here's what we'll see over and over again in the story. When humanity is left alone, apart from God, the expressions of evil get worse and worse and worse. And this is precisely what happens in the unfolding of the first pages of the Bible. From Cain killing his brother, his own brother, Abel, to the time of the flood, sin just kind of escalates to the point of the absolutely despicable. That's why it says in Genesis 6, uh, verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Uh, so what that tells us is that the people in chapter 6 with Noah didn't trust the story so badly that God regrets that he made mankind at all. And that's the story of Noah and the flood. And then it keeps escalating. We get to the chapter 11. It's the story of the Tower of Babel, and they didn't trust the story either. Uh, that's the beginning of our story. Welcome to the story. But finally, we come to chapter 12 in Genesis, where God finds one guy who's willing to trust the story. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So please come next week having read uh, chapter 2 in your copy of the story and be ready for that. Uh, what's coming next so you'll be much better prepared to engage if you've done that already um, what kind of person would God use to build his nation that's what we're going to get into next week uh, but whatever it is I'm going to leave you with this reality the the rest of the Bible is God's story of how he keeps promises to make it possible for us to enter a loving relationship with him and remember this God's love 
toward you will never run out. It'll never, ever run out. When we're lost in our sin, when we're lost in our struggles, when we're just lost, God comes chasing after us. The rest of the story in the Bible is about all the ways and lengths God will go to to rescue us, to heal us, to redeem us, to love us. So God's inviting us to trust the story that he's given us to tell, not some other version of chaos masquerading as peace. The world will make you all kinds of promises about things that they that it'll say will make you happy and give you peace. It will. But you can't uh, go to the world for something that only God can provide. The blessing came first before it all fell apart. And your life does not begin with how bad you are. It begins with how good God is and how valuable he thinks you are, how full of potential that he thinks you are. And this changes everything, literally about everything, how we feel about sin, how we feel about and relate to each other. This is the story God is inviting us into. Why would you want a second rate anything else? God's agenda is better than anything else that we can come up with on our own. I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.